0: Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Perfect. Well... (laughs) I'm Landon, and I have a new mic, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17, and this is going to annoy me, so I'm going to get rid of this pack really fast. Uh, Exodus 17 will be in the whole uh, chapter there this morning. If you have a Bible or a phone, go ahead and turn there while Nate takes my pack off. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, we had this moment in, in both gatherings this morning that I think was so special. We gathered together, many of us in this room, some at 845, some now at the, the 1045 gathering, and we sang. For, for just a moment, imagine with me that it was only you in this room as we sang about the Red Sea being parted and God's power and the miracles that he's performed in history and there's just your voice, maybe a fan with you and that's it. That doesn't have nearly the impact as hearing us as a church, as one community of people following Jesus together in the everyday stuff of life, proclaiming what is true about our God. There's immense power in us doing that together. Now imagine if instead of singing about something that happened thousands of years ago when God actually parted that sea and people actually walked through it, instead of us looking back at that, we were the actual people that walked through the sea that God parted. And then after, a worship leader like Nate or somebody wrote a song in a different language and we proclaimed what was good and true about what God had done. That would be even more powerful than what we just experienced, right? Can you imagine that for a moment? Like that actually just happened, and before that, you had seen these ten plagues that God utilized on the, pow- the most powerful nation in the world at that point in time, and then received salvation as God worked, and then a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day led you, and we had no food, but God provided bread out of nowhere and quail miraculously show up enough to feed millions of people. That's a pretty powerful moment. That's a pretty powerful song. Israel in Exodus chapter 17 had just experienced that power, literally singing the first worship song in the scriptures. That's where we pick up in this passage. The entire Israelite community, verse 1, left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next, according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? And a little while they will stone me. The Lord answered, Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Just a quick recap of what we just said. Red Sea parted, 10 miracles and plagues performed, bread and meat from nowhere provided. In a very relatively short season, short period of time, they sing this song and it echoed louder than it did in this room, it's good. And then what do they ask? Is he among us or not? Is he even here, does he even care? Have you ever asked that question or some version of it? to God or to others around you? Is he even among us? That was not the right question for God's people to ask at that moment, but we should be really cautious, I think I said something like this last week, not to be judgmental of them because we often make similar choices. We also should be cautious not to learn from the mistakes they made. Part of the reason this is recorded is for us to learn from the mistakes they made, not to just hear and not pay attention. Here they are, they've seen so much of God's faithfulness, yet they're blinded in the moment to what will happen next. It's almost hard to imagine. How could you have seen all that and then be blinded? And it begs the question, what was it that could have caused uh, such blindness? What set of circumstances or actions or planning or manipulation could have caused this people who had seen and experienced tangibly so much of the work of the almighty God of the universe to go, is he among us or not? Is he even here? Does he even care? And I want to spend a, a couple minutes providing maybe four reasons why They were blinded so significantly. Why, though they had seen and experienced God's goodness, it could be lost from their sight, from their vision so quickly. First is this. I I call him the masterclass liar. It doesn't say it explicitly here. However, I have no doubt there was a lot of manipulation going on in this time. Have you ever used Masterclass? It's pretty awesome, actually, when you think about it, what technology has done where you can get a class online from the top experts, really in any given industry. If you want to learn kind of tricks of the trade and what they've learned to gain those thousands of hours of experience to become an expert necessary, (laughs) you can pay like 15 bucks a month to hear what they say in a short version on how they become the expert in this topic. If there was somebody that was going to teach the master class of lying, or more specifically defamation, it would be Satan. And though, again, it doesn't explicitly say it, I have no doubt he was present and working and aware at this point in time. Have you ever experienced someone lying about you? Not to you. Not someone lying to you, someone lying about you. It's awful. It's really painful. But what's worse is if they're really good at lying about you. What's even worse than somebody who's really good lying about you is somebody that's really good at lying, lying about you to someone that you care about deeply. And all of a sudden, there's a a truth, maybe a, a tiny partial truth about you or a set of partial truths that they twist and craft masterfully, and they bring it to someone you love, and then do you know what happens next? The person that you love starts to have questions. Questions are birthed in their mind because someone masterfully crafted a story based on partial truths to change their idea about who you are and how you've loved. And so the person you love comes to you with these questions, and guess what? Those questions hurt. If you've experienced this, someone lying about you, they're painful. Because after all of that history, after the things that you've done for them, what you've given up, what you've endured, the, the, the hits you've taken, they question the love you've offered, the things you've done. It's awful. It's the type of question we see in verse seven. So much so, actually, this is like legal language. It's no longer just kind of this grumbling, like, God, are you there? It's actually depicting a a court-type scenario where legally they're coming to bring a case against God. Is Yahweh or is Yahweh not among us? They're bitter. They're angry in this moment. Largely, I would assume, because of the master class liar doing what he's good at. A second reason, I think that they were probably blinded in this moment. So they asked the question that was not the best question, not a helpful question in this moment. We'll talk about some better and hopefully more helpful questions later. But a second reason I think they probably were blinded was because of what I call generational distrust. Think about it. For 400 years, this family, this nation, this people had experienced abuse, and oppression, and neglect. You know what happens after generation, after generation, after generation? Experiences that, they're taught something. Fathers tell their sons, don't trust anybody who is in power. Don't trust anyone who's in leadership. Mothers tell their daughters, watch out for them. Because when they're leading, they only view you as an asset, as a commodity, as a thing to be used for their own benefit. And after one generation passes it on to the next and then to the next and the next, 400 years later, somehow within the blood of that family, their predispositions to no longer trust people, especially people in power and or leadership, like Moses, like God. We have a masterclass liar working to manipulate Israel, I have no doubt. For generations, they've been taught not to trust those in leadership. It's two reasons. Here's our third. They were lacking foundational human needs. I said this last week, but one of the most significant mistakes we can make in our following of Jesus is to think that He only cares about the spiritual and not the physical. As humans, which is good, it's good to be human. He made us that way and declared it as good. We have needs. They lacked food, and they lacked water. And when you lack food and water, rightfully so, you focus on getting food and water so that you don't die. And it's harder to focus on the past, and it's harder to care about a future you think might not exist. Fourth, the fourth reason I think they experienced blindness to the steep degree they did. It's just one word, and it's really simple, but it's tragically powerful. It's known really well in this room. It's trauma. Trauma is powerful. The more trauma you've experienced, the more powerful it is. There's some part of our brain called the amygdala that controls your fight or flight or freeze or fawn response. And it's helpful. In moments when the amygdala triggers the rest of your brain is hijacked and shut off so that you only focus on one small thing, surviving. For instance, if you were in the ocean and you're looking out and there's a big massive shark coming towards you quickly with big massive teeth, the amygdala will hijack the rest of your brain so you're not thinking about what to eat for dessert later, you're thinking about the shark that wants to eat you. And so nothing else matters except survival. That's good, that's helpful. What's not helpful is if you've experienced a lot of trauma and so now that amygdala for your brain is kind of overactive and you're just swimming in a swimming pool that's fresh water with some friends and family, but somehow your brain convinces you that there's a shark. And so nothing else matters. The only thing you're thinking about is surviving the shark attack. That isn't going to happen. The more trauma you've been through, the more likely... You will be concerned by, worried about, distracted by things that aren't actually a danger, that don't actually pose a threat. The more likely you're actually not to trust people that have done nothing to cause you not to trust them. The amygdala hijacks. Israel had been through a lot of trauma. Their salvation came at a cost. Those scars don't just go away. And so, in this moment, as the master class liar does what he's good at, as generations of distrust come to life, as they lack foundational human needs, and as their trauma comes roaring back, causing them to focus only on survival, in that moment, needing water, they don't think about what God has done faithfully again and again and again and again in the past. They don't look to a vision of the future where a faithful God will have come out victorious. They don't remember the songs they sang. In that moment, all that matters is how to make it to the next day. So again, I think we should be cautious when judging them. But also recognize this isn't the right question to ask. Is he Yahweh or is he not among us? That's a question that resulted probably from four different things, maybe more, but I I think we can be sure those four were influential factors. The key for us, maybe how we can learn, is to have awareness of those things so that we might be able to ask better questions. In verses one through seven, what we see about God's character is this. Yahweh God, Jesus, is absurdly merciful and patient. His Patience and mercy make no sense. If it's you or me, we are not that patient with anybody. But after mistake, after mistake, after mistake, after forgetting his goodness and faithfulness, after seeing him come through and and neglecting it, often in insulting ways, he remains patient and merciful with us. In verses 8 through 16, we're going to see Moses act differently than kind of the nation of Israel as a whole, and he kind of offers us a, a paradigm to think through situations differently and maybe some questions we can ask that are better than our go-to. Is Jesus or is Jesus not here? Let's go ahead and read verse, uh, beginning in verse 8. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hands. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord then said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. Remember this. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. God is actually in this moment ferociously angry. Jesus gets ferociously angry. That's going to matter later, so hold on to that. Verse 15, and Moses built an altar and named it. The Lord is my banner, he said. Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Just a little bit of time has passed from this moment where God provides water yet again. And now Israel faces attack from another nation. And uh, I envision Moses, it says, on this hilltop, on this mountain, whatever it was, distant, safe, looking down in the valley where the battle's about to take place. And it would be very easy for him in that moment to ask, is he or is he not among us? Is God here? Does he care? Why would he allow that? Especially if the masterclass liar is doing his thing, trauma's triggering, we're losing sight and awareness and focus because the only thing that matters in that moment is survival. I don't think, though, based on his actions, those are probably the questions Moses asked. Anytime, You or I, as followers of Jesus, are facing some kind of battle or or challenge or concern or whatever it may be, rather than asking, is he or is he not among us, especially in an angry tone, I think there's a better way. Here's a perhaps better question and maybe an accompanying prayer that can be helpful. I think the right question to ask or the more helpful one is, am I showing up where God wants me to show up? Notice this. Moses was not praying about them returning to Egypt. Moses wasn't saying, hey, God, if we go back, will you provide victory there? When he got the elders together of this nation, they didn't discuss diplomatic negotiations they would present to Pharaoh when they arrived back. You know why? Because that is not where God was leading them. And so that'd be a waste of a prayer. They, in fact, were at the battle God had them at he had led them and called them to be there in this moment because he was leading them to the promised land and these people attacked them along the way. Before we start with whether or not God is there or a host of other questions, a helpful question to ask is, is this where God has led me? Am I showing up where he wants me to show up? And accompanying prayer with that, his father help me to be concerned about what you want me to be concerned about and let the rest Fate. This was not a battle Israel had chosen out of selfish ambition. This was something Yahweh himself led them into, and therefore he would lead them through it. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 again. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Moses really was not doing anything at all whatsoever that could impact an actual battle, right? So this is very clearly recorded so that we would fully understand that it was God who was responsible for the victory, not Moses, not even anyone on the battlefield. When his arms went up, which literally bears no weight in a battle, as he looks down at it from the mountain, they won. And when his arms went down, not significant, they would not prevail. God was God and they were not. You've heard this statement to, to give credit where credit is due. We're familiar with that. It's really talking about when something has happened, we give credit where credit is due. But as Christians, as, as followers of Jesus, we need a present tense in the moment version of that might go like this, place pressure where the pressure can be handled. In this case, Jesus is equipped to handle the pressure we are not. Jesus is God and we are not. Jesus' shoulders can carry the load, ours cannot. And when pride overcomes us, which from cover to cover in the scriptures happens to each of us in different ways, and we try to be God or to be like God, like Eve did in the garden, it only brings disaster for ourselves and those around us. Next set of questions that might be helpful instead of, is Yahweh here? Is he among us or not? Is Am I trying to be God or am I letting God be God? Placing the pressure on his shoulders and giving credit where credit is due. And accompanying prayer with that is, Jesus, you brought me here and this is your show, so please show up. We let him be God because that's best for us and that's best for everyone around us. It's kind of shocking how much we as humans struggle to recognize we're not God. How much we struggle not to grasp, to cling on to control and to take over. A way we might be able to put this into practice, here's a a few ideas. The first that comes to mind is simply prayer, appealing to his character and his divinity. Just confessing, God, I'm not, and you are. Especially if I ask the first question first, am I showing up where you've asked me to show up? Then I can say, God, you asked me to show up here. I'm doing the best I can to stumble forward faithfully. So do your thing. Fasting, I think, is another good way to remind ourselves that he is God and we're not. Because when we're hungry, it reminds ourselves, it reminds us of our humanity, that we are in need and that we can't provide everything, but that he can. It places us in a position to be dependent. I think Sabbath is another way. It's a period of time where we don't work or worry or want or try to fix things. And so when we disengage from the battle and we tell him the battle is his, we place the pressure where the pressure can be handled and then we give credit where credit is due. The last thing is something we've done this morning we worship. It's possible, but it's hard to worship yourself while you're worshiping God. It helps us remember who's God and who is not. Joshua did as Moses had told him, and fought against Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up. To the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he, Moses, put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. I think we make two significant mistakes often as we follow Jesus. One is we try to do things on our own, and so we don't place the pressure where the pressure can be handled, and we don't give credit where credit is due because we try to be God or be like God. The other, though, is we don't embrace the roles and responsibilities he does give us. We don't participate how he has called us to. And this is a mystery that's challenging for us as we follow Jesus. That the will of God happens when God's sovereignty on one hand and human responsibility on the other hand are mixed as he leads us forward. Could Moses have won this battle without God? No, absolutely not. Would the battle have been won? If Moses didn't embrace the role God had given him, if he didn't participate in the ways God had called him to, I don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that God called him to participate in that moment, in that way, and so it begs the question for us. If you're showing up where Jesus has called you to show up, if you are putting the pressure on his shoulders and not your own, and then giving credit where credit is due, how is he calling you to participate? Because he does not just invite us, but call us to engage and participate in the ways he calls us to. Maybe that means taking a risk you've been avoiding, starting a relationship, ending a relationship, having a specific conversation, starting a new practice or ending an old one or habits. Maybe it means spending your time or your resources differently. I do know that he'll answer it if we ask, if we go, Jesus, I'm trying to show up where you're calling me to show up. I know that your shoulders, not mine, can handle the pressure. And now I want to make the moves you want me to make. He will show us what to do. Helpful set of hopefully a different type of question and accompanying prayer. Am I participating in the ways he is calling me to participate? Am I making the moves he wants me to make? Oftentimes, instead of asking that question, we get stuck at and never move on from, is Jesus among us or is he not? Before we get to that question, I think this is a better one to, to ask. And then in accompanying prayer, as we ask that question, Jesus, guide me to do the things you want me to do and give me the courage to embrace the roles you call me into. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, but whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Verse 12, when Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. This is incredibly simple but we are often so stupid when it comes to this part of God's design. Alone, Moses would have failed. Participating in what God had called him to participate in, showing up where God had called him to show up, he still would have failed without the people God had called him to follow with. Christianity is not a personal, individualized religion. Following Jesus has always been designed to be and still today is meant to be done in community. If we don't do this together and then engage in our community together following Jesus, we will all suffer failure. It will not go well. It's littered throughout the scriptures and we can either hear that or not, but the truth about it is simple. Next set of questions and prayers. Are the right with me. Before I ask, is Jesus among us or is he not? It's probably helpful to ask, are the right people around me? Am I showing up where he wants me to show up? Am I placing the pressure where the pressure can be handled? Am I giving credit where credit is due? Am I making the moves and participating how he's calling me to participate? And then lastly, are the right people around me? The accompanying prayer with this can be, Jesus, provide the people you know I need, and help me to be who you have designed me to be for them. Continue to read in verse 14 after this victory. The Lord then said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. In case you can't kind of comprehend the tone here, it is both violent and angry. I will completely blot out This family. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. What we can learn in this moment is that God is appropriately angry, and that that is really good news for us. Israel asked the question, Is Yahweh or is Yahweh not among us? I think that's often our go-to question. I think there's better questions we can ask. But often, like Israel, trauma influences us and what we can see. The masterclass liar is pretty good at what he does. Sometimes we lack basic human foundational needs. We focus on just survival or just the next best thing the next thing we want. So we quickly forget the past where God has been faithful, and we don't care too much about the future of how he will be faithful because we're stuck in this moment. Chapter 17 ends actually really similarly to chapter 16. Both end with this command for the leadership of this family, of this nation, to pass down trust generationally to teach their children and their children that God is indeed faithful. In the same way that passing down, handing down distrust generationally is powerful, passing down trust generationally is powerful. If I'm in this room and I know two people that both know me, but they don't know each other, and I tell one of them, hey, this person's trustworthy, they probably listened. If I'm in this room and I know two people that know me, but they don't know each other, and I say, hey, that person's not trustworthy. (laughs) Guaranteed, they won't trust that person. Distrust is quicker to pass along than trust, but trust can actually be transferred to people that don't know the person in question. It is unbelievably important that we embrace this part of the commission God gives in back-to-back chapters. Notice this, though. This is really key. God doesn't say, tell them... Tell your sons and tell your daughters that I'm loving. Tell them that I'm merciful. Tell them that I'm patient. Tell them that I'm forgiving and saving. He doesn't say, make a list and quiz them on it. Do you know why he doesn't do that? Because it won't be that powerful. We can have a catechism and a list and know all kinds of attributes about God, but then guess what? When real life happens, real questions and challenges and brokenness, we can recite things we know. God is love, yay. Yay. God is patient, woo it won't matter at all. Statistics and theories fall flat in the midst of real challenges in real life. So that's not what God tells Moses and Joshua to hand down to the next generation. You know what he tells them to pass down? Real stories, where those real attributes were played out in real ways, He says, tell them how when you had no food and you cried out, I heard you and I provided. Tell them that story. Don't just say God provides. Tell them when you were facing an actual battle and an enemy was coming against you, I showed up for that battle and you won. That battle, name it. Remember this moment and tell that story because stories pass along trust to the next generation way more powerfully and effectively than mere statistics. So I urge you, whether you have children or not, as we think about the next generation of people who will follow Jesus, they desperately need to hear our stories. Not just the statistics, the catechism, the theoretical about our Jesus, but a functional theology. If you've seen what I've seen, if you've heard what I've heard, if you've experienced his faithfulness the way I have, let me tell you how he's shown up for me because that can get passed along to the next generation. It's going to be critical as we face following Jesus in a culture that often hates Jesus. It's really important we embrace this job that he's given us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. As Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, I pray for our church that your spirit would give us power to understand who you are and how you act. You protect us from the lies of the enemy. That we'd understand your anger is when we're hurt and your patience is when we fail, not you're angry at us when we fail and you're patient when we don't need you. You show up in the right time and the right ways always. Allow us to know you more. We look to you now, in Jesus' name,
1: amen. When we talk about stories, historical moments that like impacted the world forever, Jesus on the cross is the top of the list. I mean, it's the greatest display of love that the world has ever known. In a cosmic turn of history, it broke the back on sin and death because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The cross is the place where both grace and truth intersect. The justice of God and the mercy of God intersect. And then Jesus left us communion, this ability for us to remember his work and his nature and his character. it's such a powerful time. It's more than just taking a sip of a drink and eating a little cracker. This is an opportunity to remember a tremendous amount of the attributes of God and the love that Jesus has for you. And uh, so we're going to invite you to take communion here. We've got the elements on either side of the stage here or in the back of the room, whichever is easiest for you to get to. You've got the bread that represents his body that was broken for you and the drink that represents his blood that was shed for you. You take that back and just spend a little time with Jesus. Let Abba love you. Let him remind you of who he is and what he's been doing. If you got questions to ask, ask good questions of him. But maybe avoid the where are you because this is a good reminder. He was there for you then He's here for you right now, and his love is everlasting. You can come when you're ready and then take the elements when you're ready, back at your seat. We're also gonna invite you, some of you might need some prayer, and the work that Jesus is doing in your heart and your life might just be helped along as a brother or sister comes alongside of you, and they'd love just to maybe listen to you and just spend a little time praying for you or over you and so if you're coming for community and want to stop in over at the table here for prayer then uh, please please take that opportunity okay so gracious heavenly father we love you so much thank you for Jesus thank you for such a tangible moment in history to uh, be reminded that you are near You are Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we thank you for your justice and the times where you're appropriately angry. We also thank you for the times where you're so incredibly patient and gracious with us. And so because you invite us to any single moment, we come to you now and we just ask that you'd wrap us up. We'd stand under the waterfall of all that you've got for us. Comfort us however you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready. Awesome.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice
1: the way of Jesus.